When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to another Buckeye Retalkables classic game on hand. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. We're doing 2006 Ohio State, Michigan. Nathan, we, we were maybe going to do the national championship game from 02. Backed off that. I just thought we could save that a little bit longer. But this is practically that, Nathan. Like this is this is a one versus two matchup. This feels like a national championship game in a lot of ways. There's talk around this game of whether there should be a rematch. At the end of this game, the announcers are talking about like, well, they're they're the two best teams in the country. So whether you think they should rematch or not, well, is it fair? Well, if you're doing the two best teams, you did two like it's it's a national championship style game, Nathan. Yeah, I think it's why the expanded playoff even just to go to four made a lot of sense so that if you had two teams in the same conference that were the best two you could give them a chance at a rematch without having to feel like you were you know, nudging out just the entire rest of the college football world from being involved in the, the conversation um and but i also think that the, the realization that that probably wasn't all that realistic um, it, it heightens a game like this even more. So that's obviously kind of one of the conversations we've been talking about um, around even expanding to 12 is like, do you lessen games like this and by, by taking the stakes away a little bit? And I, I don't know that you necessarily, it'll make them less important. They won't, you won't be ruining someone's season or limiting someone's season. But I think these games, when it's one versus two and it's a rivalry like this, there's still going to be plenty of juice. So we'll get into the categories in a moment. Uh, this was my second year on the beat, so I covered this game. Steven, you were a youngster in Columbus, Oof. right? What what do you remember personally about this game? Because in 2000, how old actually were you for this game in 2006? Four. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so do you, like, do you remember watching this or do you remember being excited yeah. for it or anything? Oh, yeah, this is the best Ohio State-Michigan game I've ever seen. I remember this game wholeheartedly. I remember Troy Smith, Ted Ginn, Mike Hart, these jerseys with the yellow pants, oh, maize pants, sorry, Michigan fans. I remember this game. This is this was Apex Ohio State and Michigan. 
but also this was pre like SEC takeover of the college football landscape. So you're right. It was, I do remember those conversations and having them at my middle school about man, Ohio State and Michigan should just rematch this game. This is one even that I remember. I know that we've done a lot of retalkables where I, I'm murky on whether or not, even from this era that I would have been watching, but I, I remember this game. I remember the build up to this game. I remember the one versus two talk and whether there should be a rematch, like I, all of those things. Like this was just sort of one of those seismic college football events that you, you might not even get every year. So one of the things in watching this, uh, you know, I, I watched the cut with all the commercials and everything and just looking at the graphics and that kind of stuff. So this is 15 years ago. And it doesn't feel a million years ago to me. Like the style of play is modern enough. You know, John Cena's in a commercial, you know, like it's, it's like regular, you know, Kirk Herbstreet's on the call. It's not a bunch of people who are gone. There are people who are still in our lives who are part of this. And I bet this is probably right at the edge of it. That, but if you're listening to this podcast, I would imagine most of the audience like has a memory of this. I guess there might be an 18 year old listener to this. And I know we have some young listeners and, and if you're a young listener, if you're a teenager and like you haven't ever watched this, go, I mean, go watch it. It's the summer. Go watch this. Well, what are you doing today, Steve? Oh, I'm watching Ohio state, Michigan, 2006. That's a great way to spend your afternoon, but this is, it is 15 years away, but it feels current and modern and, and Nathan going into it as an oldster, I was a little bit nervous of like, is this going to be one of those again where it feels like the Civil War? And it's like, oh, my God, how did we live in 2006? It's like, no, there's a cell phone commercial, you know, like it it felt like you could. And then the style of play again, Troy is a monster and he plays a modern game, right? Like Chad Henney's a little bit more of a stiff drop back passer, but like there's enough talent on both sides. I, I almost like breathe the sigh of relief that. This did not make me feel super old necessarily. Well, yeah, especially because we've just done some recently that were so ancient, like those ones from the, the 70s that felt like, yeah, I mean, Civil War, that's a, that's a good way to describe it. And this, this, I was struck by that too, that very early on, I was like, oh, this feels like it could have been not even 15 years ago, right? Like this, this feels like just, uh, just barely beyond what we have now. It, it feels very modern. Um, there are some ways that it felt, very different even from other trestle era games that we have because uh, i think we've done at least one and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later in the way that this game played out and, and some of the ways that Ohio state approached this game but I, like i was struck you know troy smith in the first half that he had it was like okay it, i i see the bridge between him to justin fields whereas they might have put up similar numbers with the same number of attempts in a first half like that it feels just looks even more refined as a quarterback doing it. But I, I saw the progression from like one quarterback to the next in Ohio state's history. So I, I'll say this off the top because I could wrap up with this, but I, I'll say this off the top. And that's kind of what Steven said already. I think this is the perfect Ohio state football game. It's not the best game that Ohio state football has ever played. It's not the most important game they've ever played because they go on and lose the national championship. But I think it literally, if you are devising an Ohio State football game, I think this literally gives you every single thing you want. Because first of all, if you're desi designing the perfect Ohio State football game, it would be an Ohio State-Michigan game. It's like, all right, well, it's great to play Alabama, but like this is our rival. Okay, it's Ohio State-Michigan. Well, is it important? It's one versus two. It's the first one versus two game in the history. Okay, are there great players with well, the Heisman winners in this game, 
right? Is it a competitive game? Michigan's good. Like I, that was one of the things I got from watching this. Like Michigan has talent. Mario Manningham can play. Mm. Mike Hart is a baller, right? Like Chad Henney leaves a little bit to be desired on some of this stuff. Lamar Woodley, there are some guys on defense from Michigan flying around. Like this is a good opponent. And then this is a really fun get like Ohio state lets it rip. They come out throwing. They have guys all over the field who can get it done. They have a, their depth of skill position talent is almost as deep as we're expecting, like, or maybe more, you know, what we're expecting to see from Ohio state this year. It, and, and there's even like one other little thing that I'll get into in a second. I, I just thought it's just the, it's the biggest crowd in Ohio state history. When it happens, they storm the field. Like it just, I don't know what else, Nathan, you could ask for. This was college football at its finest for an Ohio State fan to me. I mean, I suppose, and it'll probably never happen, but I suppose now with the 12-team playoff, there is a way that Ohio State-Michigan could play for the national championship in a way that wasn't really all that plausible before. But short of that, I think you're right. I mean, to get one versus two with all of the national championship implications of that on top of what is just, you know, what it means for this rivalry. It is, and it's especially jarring, especially I think for someone like me, because like I said, I remember this game, but my history as far as just covering these, this program over the last couple of years, we're nowhere near what this was. And, and I, um, we'll talk about this a little bit later with some of our picks too, but like this, this reminded me of almost like, is this like where Michigan sort of hit the wall? Like when was, did they, even though they've, they've had some other competitive games with Ohio State since then, was this the last time they were really a power in the same way that Ohio State was? It's a really interesting question because, as I've said before, like, I keep I, – I, I try to wish it into existence because I'm never going to do it. But, like, there's a, there's a book that starts with this game or ends with the game or something. It's about the sort of the, the rise of the SEC, the death of the Big Ten, and then the Urban Meyer resurrection of Ohio State. But there's a lot going on here. But that's an interesting point, Nathan, that for Ohio State, this is a sort of a peak at the end of this era that I think you can, you know, 2002 is awesome. And it's like, man, Ohio State is like, Ohio State's the best thing going. And here comes the SEC. And you don't know it when this game is being played, but that's going to happen. And then for the next, you know, eight years, Nobody argues. It's like, oh, who's this? Like, well, it's the SEC. Like, the SEC just takes everything over. But this is also a last peak for Michigan because I guess a couple of years later, Henny still sticks around. They have that weird game where I guess it's the next year. It's like 14 3 or whatever. It's really yeah. low scoring, and Henny's hurt and he's trying to play and he can't throw. And Beanie Wells runs him over. So they still kind of hang around, but we're getting towards the end of the Lloyd Carr era. And then once Lloyd Carr leaves, Michigan goes to hell in the handbasket. So that's a really good point, too, that it is a peak for Ohio State, but it's also a peak for Michigan. And it's not that Ohio State fell off the map. It's that people passed them, but Michigan's about to fall off the map. So there's a lot at stake here for both teams. Bo died. It is It is like this. You couldn't. You. I mean, like the legend. Kinda... Go ahead. The pregame coverage of it was in full effect. That was pretty much what dominated the pregame coverage. I do remember that one, whether it was college game day or anything else after that, that was all people were talking about was Bo and how it kind of lined up perfectly with this game. 
So Bo speaks to the team on Thursday. He dies Friday morning. Yeah. I remember remember being down there, going down to Ohio Stadium when the Michigan bus got there on Friday for their walkthrough. And like there were Michigan fans hanging out there and just like, you know, nobody was talking, but like writing a story about like, oh my gosh, this happened. And I remember this, there was this weird kind of punk ska group called the Dead Schembecklers that was very popular for this little window of the Ohio state, Michigan rivalry. Um, they had a song about Chad Henney that was not very flattering about him. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun, but that night, so they're called the dead Schembecklers. And then there's this big thing. They're going to perform Friday night before the game at the, uh, the theater on high street there. And so they, they're the dead Schembecklers and now Bo Schembeckler is dead. So they changed their name to the bastard sons of Woody for that performance and they go on and it's like this funny thing. Ha ha ha. The lead singer dresses up like Woody, but it's like Bo's dead. And I remember like a bunch of reporters went to that. Like I was there and like Austin Murphy from sports illustrated was there and Austin, you know, I think the sports illustrated story probably led with being at the bastard sons of Woody concert, but like, it was just this thing that hung over everything. And it's like, how do you add that in? It was already one versus two. And now you add that in. Um, unbelievable unbelievable sort of drama to the thing and then yeah steven like they did like a mitch album did like a mitch album like the leaves are falling that kind of sports writing can cram it i mean really can we get past america it's like can we break down what they did on third down mitch album tuesdays with maury it's like all right Bo Schembechler was a great coach. I, I can't wait to write Mondays with Doug. Hopefully not, not for a long time. It would not be heartwarming. It's not going to be <laughs> no, like, oh, no. we'd get on the podcast and he would start screaming. Ah, Mondays <laughs> with Doug. Yeah. So, I mean, like, whatever. But, I mean, but it was great. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable how it all happened. So, anyway, everybody understands this. There's this drama building up to it. And then Ohio State wins. 42-39, the Buckeyes win. And let's get in to our categories. Again, we enjoy you guys being part of our Buckeye Retalkables. This is the Buckeye Talk podcast. If you want to subscribe, be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315. We continue to creep towards Big Ten Media Days. This would be a good time to get in on it. Who owned this game? Steven. That's our first category always. Who owned the game? What's your answer? Troy Smith, this is his Heisman moment. I mean, this is he wins the Heisman in this game. And actually, the, not, Brett Munsenberger and Kirk Herbstreit, they were talking about it during the game. And if they pull this out, this is basically the game where he wins the Heisman Trophy. 29 to 41, four touchdowns, 316 yards. His only mistake is he threw a ball he shouldn't have thrown and he got tipped up and it ends up being an interception. But outside of that, I mean, this is all you would want in a Heisman Trophy moment for Troy Smith. Nathan, who'd you have as winning, as owning, as owning this game? I actually went beyond that. I said the whole OSU backfield. Uh, as amazing as Troy Smith was in the first half, he was not especially good in the second half. I don't think they win this game without Pittman and Wells and the contributions that they made. I think you needed that whole backfield in order to win a game like this. I think you're right. I think that because, and they even showed the graphic during the game that it was basically Smith against Brady Quinn and what Quinn had done that day against Army and their numbers were actually pretty similar at that point point. Um, and the fact that I mean if you're 
you're the number one team. You beat the number two team to go on to the national championship game. Like you, that that's separating you. You're going to win the Heisman at that point. But as far as actually who won the game and who maybe uh, it, it, it cemented Troy Smith's legacy, but it definitely sort of kickstarted Beanie Wells' legacy. Yeah, I have Beanie in another category that we'll get into oh, yeah. a little bit later. We got to talk about the Beanie spin move. Um, Troy Smith, obviously, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't think Troy won the Heisman here. He locked up the Heisman, but I right. think like if Troy had been mediocre, I still think he might have won. And like if they would have lost, but he was pretty decent, I still think he might have won it. Like he won, he won in a landslide. When he won, he won by the largest margin at the time that anybody had ever won. So I don't, he was great. What was it? 341, four touchdowns. He didn't need to throw for 341 and two touchdowns, I don't think, and four touchdowns to win the Heisman. But once he did, it, it he was practically unanimous. I, I think what it is is so you remember when we were having a discussion about CJ Stroud and Jack Miller and Kyle McCord heading into the spring game and how CJ Stroud can do more to just like lock up the job while the other ones can just like close the gap a little bit. I think that's what so maybe that's a better way of putting this. Troy Smith is probably he was already the front runner and the guy you thought was going to win it anyway. And he pretty much just closed the door on Brady. I mean, on Brady Quinn's ability to maybe close whatever gap there may have been. So maybe that's a better way of putting it is he didn't win the Heisman in this game. He just made sure that the gap didn't close at all. So I picked somebody different for owning this game. And uh, I was going to write this out because this is actually like, this is like my Mitch album take. Like, blah, 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 blah. But I think Jim Trestle owned this game. And I think this is like the peak of Jim Trestle. I think it might be his Listen, they shouldn't have beaten Miami and they beat them. But we, I think it might be his greatest coaching effort. And Brent Musburger during the course of this game says, Jim Trestle is the best play caller in college yeah, football. Which was a big and, and very quickly in the Jim Trestle era, soon after this, people are begging Jim Trestle to not call the plays anymore. But in this game, he dials up as much stuff as Ryan Day ever has in a game. He dials up the Ted Ginn Jr. lineup at tight end and catch a touchdown down the middle of the field, which is one of the greatest plays in Ohio State, Michigan history. He dials up like a Statue of Liberty delayed draw for an Antonio Pittman 29-yard run when they need it, when they need it. In the second half, he goes five wide at the goal line multiple times to cash in in the red zone. And Bob Davey is like, man, this is awesome. Jim Trestle, his play calling, as good as Ohio State was, his play calling got Ohio State over the top. Like he, he especially in the first half, Nathan, as you said, I mean, I think Troy threw for 283 yards in the first half and he threw for like nine in the third quarter. So they got bogged down a little bit. There are also some drops and some other things. Motivationally, right? Michigan, Michigan just lost their legend. Michigan's coming in. We're number two. We're coming in to knock off the king. We're playing for Bo, right? Trussell handles all of that. And I think the other thing that's at play here is much, and we all know this, there's going to be, I'm going to say some things. We're all going to say some things here that are obvious, but when you're reliving the past, you have to, you can't assume the obvious. 
you know, like we, we talk a lot about Justin Fields is all about Ryan Day. There's a lot of Ohio State players who would come to Ohio State no matter what. Like Justin Fields came to Ohio State because Ryan Day was going to be his head coach. I think Jim Trestle is the only Ohio State coach who would have gotten Troy Smith to Ohio State. It's a completely different reason, but I don't think anybody else would have taken him. Ryan Day wouldn't take Troy Smith. Urban Meyer wouldn't take Troy Smith. I don't think Coop would have taken Troy Smith. I don't know if Earl Bruce would have. There is a special particular relationship that, that Jim Trestle has with Ted Ginn Sr. that leads to him taking a risk on a thing that Troy was probably going to go to West Virginia. And he turns into a Heisman winner. That Trestle develops him into a Heisman Trophy winner, obviously with the help of Joe Daniels, a great quarterbacks coach. But this, there's a lot of things to me, both in the game as a leader, as a head coach, as a motivator, and as a play caller. And then you see Troy comes out, man, on senior day and gives Trestle that hug. Like you can see that is something there. And everything that Troy Smith would not have become Troy Smith unless Jim Trussell was a head coach at Ohio State. So everything about this game is Trussell related. And the other thing is, when you win a national championship in your second year, he won a national championship with a lot of Cooper players, right? That always happens. Just like Urban Meyer won a national championship with Ron Zuck players at Florida in this season. But by this year, this is Trussell's fifth year. This is all Trussell. This is you've laid it down. We know what Jim Trestle football is all about. Ohio State fans understand his personality, his way of doing business. He's he's lost his voice from this game, but he's like talking about this team has humility. Like the Jim Trestle thing is in full effect. And I think everything that goes into being a head coach is on display in this game. And this is the best Jim Trestle has ever been because they're going to go out and get the doors blown off by Florida in 50 days. So that's why I think Jim Trestle owned this game. I kind of, you almost made me want to change my answer a little bit. I used a lot of that stuff to talk about the question of coaching moment of the day, because there were really none for Jim Trestle. And I don't know how many times in his coaching career, you can say that there are no questionable coaching decisions by him. And I think the Michigan motivation to the point, he reignited the rivalry. He said that in, in St. John arena that day, we're here to beat Michigan. That's what we're here to do. And I, the one thing I noticed with him, especially with Troy Smith is he got really aggressive in these Michigan games because I'm looking at Troy Smith's throwing stats from the two seasons he was a starter. He threw 37 passes against Michigan in 2005. He never went over 30 in any other game that season, which obviously some of that is because he wasn't a starter until later on in the year because of reasons we've already talked about. And then in that 2006 season, the only other time he reached 30 was when he, he was 21 of 30 against Cincinnati. But other than that, he was kind of living in the 20 in the 20s. They got really aggressive and let Troy Smith get, let it loose against Michigan, and he got really creative with a lot of these play calls. So I think that played a role into it, the fact that this was Michigan. And it kind of reminded me of 2018 a little bit where Ryan Day just let it loose with Dwayne Haskins, and they threw it in, in a year where they were already throwing it all over the place. We saw a lot of creativity in that 20, 2018 Michigan game. A lot of that showed up in this 2006 game as well. I think it is an interesting game, Nathan, to analyze in combination with the 2005 Ohio State-Texas game that we already did. That We thought Jim Trestle blew that game by not making a decision on quarterback. Here we are. That's early in 2005. Here we are at the end of 2006. So it's basically two full seasons later, and it's the same quarterback, and it has all come together, right? And I think the criticisms we had for their, uh, the Texas game were justified for Trestle, but I think the praise here is just as justified. Well, it, it, you see 
how much it makes a difference when you when you decide on a quarterback and then you get to sort of your offense can start to build an identity around them a little bit. Uh, even though there's obviously a lot of other weapons here, I was really impressed by the the depth of the receiving core. And that's maybe something we can talk about too, but the, 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 the contrast between those two games specifically. Yeah. I mean, you, you had a team that looked a little bit disjointed and a little bit unsure of who it was going to trust and, and what it was. And then by the time you get to this game, I, I feel like that had, had solidified a lot. I was hoping, could you expound a little bit though on what you mean about the, the Troy Smith Trestle thing, just because, there may be people like me um, who are like, or people who are newer in their Ohio state fandom or are just coming into this later. Um, like, is it just because Troy Smith just wasn't that caliber of recruit necessarily, or wasn't the kind of quarterback that those same guys would have recruited? Like what? His borderline five-star, you know, top 100 type of kid. He was an elite 11 member too. So Troy so Smith, yeah, Troy Smith, Troy Smith was, they weren't sure he was a quarterback 100%. Justin Zwick mm-hmm. was the big-time quarterback recruit mm-hmm. in that class. And this was when uh, Trestle – so he was in the 2002 recruiting class. Yeah, I have So it. he was number, early on. Yeah, number 191. Oh, he's not a borderline five-star, sorry. Number yeah, that was an insane over, thing yeah, that was a bit That's much. not that even close much. to yeah, that was that, Yeah, that was a bit much. I don't even know. Justin Zwick is who I was thinking of in that moment. 191 player, the number eight dual-threat quarterback, and the number 12 player in Ohio. And that's I don't think that but that's that's like a riggedy higgity like backdoor. That's what it says on the Internet. Now, he was not like a big time quarterback recruit. And uh, Jim Trestle had this relationship with Ted Ginn Sr. at Glenville High School that they got to know each other when Trestle was a head coach at Youngstown State. They just connected in a certain way. And uh, again, it's in the book. I don't have a chapter on Troy, but I have a chapter on Dante Whitner. Um, And I talked to Trestle and he's told the story many times, but like I, I. I talked to him about Troy and he just, this Glenville pipeline started and it started with Troy Smith and then Dante Whitner and then Ted Ginn Jr. And he was talking about Ted senior came down with Troy. They go on the backfields and like Troy's kind of standing there and Trestle's like, man, you know, I don't know. And seniors like, just give him a chance. And so like he took Troy and was like, I don't know if he's a quarterback. We'll take him. Let's see what happens. He can play some special teams. We'll give him a shot, but let's like bring him down here. But he just, he was not like a sure thing quarterback. I mean, he was, he was a quarterback who was playing special teams early in his career and they didn't know how it was going to go. And they had their guy. Justin Zwick was huge. They had their guy. And then Troy developed into this, but it was just the only reason it happened is because basically Ted Ginn senior and, and Jim Tressel were so close that they sort of believed in each other. And it was, I mean, it's not a favor because Troy had talent, but it was like he took a risk because he believed in the coach and the coach was vouching for Troy Smith. And then this happened. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Lots of people on this game because that's a great Ohio State win. When we come back, our other categories, starting off with the JT Barrett, underappreciated player of the game next on Buckeye Talk. Doug, Nathan, Steven. I had to put one guy down for the JT Barrett underappreciated player because Bob Davey at one point says this guy is the most underappreciated player in college football. I was like, well, I guess he's claiming the category. So David Harris, the Michigan linebacker, is the guy he was talking about when he said that. There were some really good players on this Michigan defense. So David Harris fit that. But I also put Jay Richardson, who is a media personality in Columbus now, had two sacks in this game. Um, 
you know, Vernon Golston's on this team. Vernon Golston's going to really emerge into a stud in 2007 at defensive end. Lawrence Wilson made a play in this game. It reminded me of like Lawrence Wilson was a guy that you thought was going to be it as a defensive end, and it never quite happened. But Jay Richardson, like, beat a double team and got a sack on Chad Henney late in this game. And he was, like, one of those veteran dudes who just, like, in a game like this, I think had two sacks. And it's like, yeah, Jay Richardson, like, did his job and was, like, a do-your-job kind of guy. And now he's a very good uh, football analyst on TV. Nathan, who'd you have for underappreciated? So I really bent the category here. I I didn't put a player. Uh, I wanted to use this opportunity to pour one out for Lloyd Carr um, just because I feel like uh, as much derision as now is heaped on the Michigan quarterback uh, or Michigan, I'm sorry, Michigan coaches who came after him and even the, the, the current one, or maybe especially the current one, it, it's nice to harken back to when, uh, you know, a Michigan coach could win a national championship could be a, a top five, top 10 program uh, fairly consistently. I mean, they did that like four times in a eight year span at, at one point in, in his career after the national championship. Um, you know, th- th- this was a, a, a coach who could have Michigan 11 and 0 going into the Ohio state game and uh, uh, college football is missing that right now. No, I think it's a good point. I mean, like he wasn't Bo, but he kept like 80% of the Bo legacy going. And then we saw how hard that was for everybody else. And that's what they were trying. They're trying to get back with Harbaugh. They're trying to back, get back to like being Michigan men and Lloyd Carr. It's hard to replace a legend and he replaced a legend like, and did a really good job doing it. So that, I think that's a great thing to point out in this game. Uh, Steven, what you have for this? I've kind of got three people. One is just my own unappreciated guy because I forgot how good he was in this game. Nathan mentioned him with who owned the game, but Antonio Pittman, who was pretty much the J.K. Dobbins to Troy Smith's uh, Justin Fields in this game from the 2019 game, where it's J.K. Dobbins was awesome in 2019, but we always think about Justin coming off the sideline and throwing a touchdown after re-injuring his knee. But, you know, Antonio Pittman was pretty good as well. But then uh, Brian Robisky, I mean, seven catches, 89 yards, including basically the game ceiling touchdown. And he's a sophomore playing in this game, which he doesn't quite qualify for the if, – if, he, if he'll, bite, he'll bite as a pup because there's another guy we're going to talk about there, but he should be mentioned. And then also, this is a good spot to talk about Antonio Smith. I think – he I mean, eight tackles, and he had that sack and a tackle for loss in this game. This is a guy who was a former walk-on from Brookhaven, from Columbus, Ohio, who turned himself into a scholarship player and then turned himself into an impact player as a nickel corner in this defense, who had the pick six this season, I think. He is basically everything that people have been trying to make C.J. Saunders be for the past three or four years here. He's like the by far the best walk-on that I've ever covered at Ohio State. And he, he's, he's a starting cornerback for yeah. a team that's number one all year. Second in tackles this year. And But there are also things that happen in this game that I thought to myself, oh, they're much better in the secondary now than they used to be. That it's one of those things. What a great story of the Columbus walk-on, who's your second leading tackler and a starting cornerback. And it's like, you should not have a walk-on from Columbus as a starting cornerback for the number one team in the country. Like, that's what you get Marshawn Lattimore and Jeff Okuda to do. Like, this is not... This is a step below this secondary Donald Washington comes in as a nickel corner. Malcolm Jenkins is playing corner. Obviously Malcolm Jenkins ends up being a great player, Um, but they're little, they're like a little bit of a step short. Like if if they're lucky that they're playing Chad Henney and not, not uh, I don't even know who would have been a great quarterback back then. Cause I think they could have been got 
by maybe a better pass. Brady Quinn. I, I, well, they didn't get like... got by Brady Quinn. They, they, they. That's true. That's where they, they beat him beat, here. They beat the crap out of Brady Quinn the year before. Yeah. Do you feel like that's a little bit of a remnant of a time when Ohio State was still primarily recruiting to beat win the Big Ten, and then assuming that Big Ten style of play could then be taken to the national level. It was more like, you know what I'm saying? Like they were, you were kind of carrying the mantle for your conference and you're putting your Big Ten style of play up against Florida, Texas, whoever, USC. Whereas now I think Ohio State would look at it as we have to recruit to win the national championship, which will win the Big Ten along the way. And that's why you go get those different caliber of athletes. They just weren't recruiting nationally as much. I don't know that it was a choice. It was just kind of how it was. But I mean, you know, and Marshawn Lattimore and Denzel Ward are both Northeast Ohio guys. There, there are good corners in Ohio, but you know, you run through a lot of the other guys. There's not a Kerry Combs isn't digging out a lot of Ohio guys at the moment when he's restacking the secondary right now. So it's just a reality. It's just a reality of the situation. But like all the credit in the world to Antonio Smith for doing what he did. And Stephen, you make a great point. Like this is a thing we have to give credit to that walk-ons that actually like do really do a thing like this because people love to talk about it. And a lot of times it's just fluff. It's not true. Antonio Smith really helped this team, but I thought it also says a little bit, something about the time that they needed help at an important position from a former walk-on, but he, he does deserve mention here. Because of where passing offenses were, I think Ohio state could get away with it. That's well, it, what, that's a good it. point. If it, it's a good point, you, know, to, I'm saying, yeah, you could win point, the big yeah. 10 with, with that guy. You but almost, is it exposed I mean, when you go to the next level? I mean, you got exposed 50 days later when the speed showed up. But, yeah, you could, you're, you could get to the national championship game with this in 2006, given where Ohio State probably had more, one of the more advanced passing games, which is hilarious to say about a Jim Trestle offense. All right, let's do slob moment. I have a really specific moment. This it's is about so as good of a slob moment as I think we've had in a retalkable uh, but I'll let, well, no, I'll just do it. I'll just do it and see if you guys agree with it. The Antonio Pittman touchdown right up the gut is yep. mesmerizing. Left guard Steve Raring pulls. And then I found uh, somebody had done an oral history like 10 years after the game. And Kirk Barton, the right tackle, comes across. He's talking about that. He says like they put this, this play in the playbook this week. They're like he hits the tight end initially and then comes off the tight end and comes down and gets the linebacker. And like Raring's coming from the left side, Burton's coming, Burton's coming from the right side. They cross and take the two opposite linebackers, and Antonio Pittman is gone. And it is like power football at its finest. And yes, Antonio Pittman puts it away, but they get the initial hole and blow the guys off the line, and then they take care. It's a nine-man box, and they take care of both linebackers at a time in the second half. As you said, Nathan, we're like, they were doing nothing offensively. And then they just get like a 60-yard touchdown run out of like a basic power running play because Barton and Raring are like ballet dancers and blowing these linebackers out of the play. No, that's one of the plays. I mean, that's the prominent one that I wrote down, that, that mm-hmm. um, especially um, that the guy pulling into and leading that through. I mean, that was just one of those things that when you're watching a game and at full speed, you don't always get. And that's why, um, and sometimes for us up in the booth, 
watching games, um, those can be tougher moments to pick up. I, 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 I envy sometimes the people watching at home because they're getting to watch like little bits on the replay that we don't always get to see, but that, that it was just a, 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 a magical play. If you're an offensive lineman. It was 28-24 at that point. That was a 56-yard touchdown run with eight minutes left in the third quarter at a time. Again, that was basically Ohio State's entire offense in the third quarter. So it takes a four-point lead and makes it a two-score game at that point. And that's the play, I think. Um, there's, you know, like there's the Eddie George picture running away from the Notre Dame defense that Ohio State fans have on their walls, like the panoramic with like 10 Notre Dame defenders chasing him. That's from when they Ohio State Notre Dame played in the mid-90s. And then this is the Pittman photo. There's a Pittman photo that is like Pittman running away with like eight Michigan defenders in the background. And it's this play. And it's like, it just captures like exactly what an Ohio state fan wants to capture in that moment, which is like an Ohio state running back breaking away. Just like, and Steve Raring was one of those guys. When urban Steve Raring was like one of the like biggest humans that I've seen and like kind of this like long lean offensive lineman, right. Of the modern day where it's like, you know, Nicholas Petit Frere looks like, you know, Kevin Durant or whatever, like Steve Ring was like one of those guys with a gut. And it was like, Steve Ring was like a big dude. Steve Ring was like a two burrito Chipotle guy. I think he talked about that one time, but he had the fit like on this play, man, he moves like he gets out and he moves and does his job for like a very, very large human being. So it again, is just a nod to how athletic these offensive linemen have to be at times to make these blocks. Malik Hooker, where did he come from? Awards. Kind of like a guy who came out of nowhere on a play or maybe whatever. Steven, do you have something for this? Not not really. This wasn't the best game for this situation. Uh, but I will. I want to shout out um, Michigan, Michigan's fullback, though, um, Obi Ogley. He had a couple of really good, solid blocks as a fullback coming out of that backfield that sprung Mike Hart open for some 30, 40 yard runs in that game, especially with this new zone scheme that they were trying to do. So I just wanted to shout him out. But as far as I don't, this wasn't a good Malik Hooker game for anybody because no, there wasn't I, a lot of plays made like that. No, I like it. I, this was like you, there wasn't a lot of unknowns in this game. Yeah. Like Ohio State is what they are, Michigan is what they are. They've been aiming toward this all season. You know what's up. And I didn't really have anybody for this either. Nathan, did you find somebody for sort of like out of, out of nowhere? Uh, again, not a player, but having done one other Trestle game on the rewatchables, retalkables, excuse me, and having um, heard about this concept of Trestle ball, like I, I put the play calling down as the where <laughs> did it come from? I mean, that, that first drive of the game, did they run the ball at all? I think they just came out and threw the ball repeatedly and, and marched down the field for a touchdown. I mean, Troy Smith throws the ball. 26 times in the first half we've already touched on this but like that was not if you had told someone um if someone had asked you okay before i watch this game maybe they don't tell you that they're going to watch this game specifically so you don't know to like prepare them but say like hey like what was jim trestle's play calling like how would you describe like the jim trestle offense at ohio state and you would have gone on for like or an Ohio State fan would have gone on for like half an hour about uh, the frustrations of it and then you watch this game you'd be like what was that person talking about no, I do think, I mean, Trestle earned that reputation, but it's also kind of unfair. Most of the time when it was like, when he knew he had a talent edge, he wasn't going to risk it. He was going to win with special teams and defense. He wasn't going to turn it over. And we're going to win, but I don't care if we win by 40. We'll win by 14 in a game when we're favored by 31, right? That's where a lot of this comes in. 
when he knew that the talent was kind of equal, it's like, well, we better do something. And they were showing this at the end. It's like Troy Smith in big games, right? Troy ripped Michigan three times. He destroyed Notre Dame in the bowl game the year before, right? They, they, in 2006, they, this is the second one, two matchup they play in 2006. The first one was week two at Texas where Texas Vince Young is gone. They're playing Colt McCoy, Texas. That's still one, two though. Troy rips Texas on the road, right? Like when it mattered, when it was like, we better do something like they ripped people. Now it didn't, it didn't get done against Florida and LSU. Right. But he, he was strategically conservative. I do think in the end, he wasn't like conservative for conservative sake. Like he was conservative when it was like, well, the only way we're going to lose to Indiana is if we do something stupid. So guess what? We're not going to do anything stupid and we'll win 28 to seven when people thought we should have won 48 to seven. Right. And so that's where a lot of that came from, but I do, you just have, and a lot of the stuff, I think uh, some of it's a myth, but like the idea of like saving plays, like for the Michigan game and like hiding stuff. It's like, he did <laughs> like, there are things in this game where, and they're talking about the broadcast. It's like, well, eh, then do that. Like he did save stuff. And it's like, this was, again, this is why it was him at his best because he knew they needed to be at their best and he kept some stuff in reserve. And then he, in the moment was willing to unleash it. Jim Trestle punt or not to punt. Here we go. I'm being unfair. We named the category. The category <laughs> is a punting. It's like, oh, that guy does his punt. And I just said, you know what? He doesn't only punt. It's like, so, but the, so the, I'm, I'm the blame. This is my fault. <laughs> the Jim Trussell punt or not to punt decision of the game. Uh, sort of like, are you too aggressive? Are you too conservative in the moment? Nathan, what'd you have for this category? Well, again, going against reputation, I thought there were two moments that really jumped out to me. First one was, uh, on that, I guess it was the first series taking that um, taking that shot on third and sixteen instead of doing something safer, something that would have you know I don't know teams that might have might have run a screen, might have done a draw or something, settled for a field goal. I mean they go for it and and get a big gain and, and go in for a touchdown. And then later in the game, um, just I thought a really fun play call the the, the play action touchdown on on second and inches. Um, I, I thought was just a, a a really nice I just love play action and when it when it's executed well and I thought that was just textbook the 39 yarder to Ted Ginn I thought that was that's the cleanest play action one of the cleanest play actions I've seen one because the formation of it is crazy and to throw to throw out of that when everybody knows you're probably going to run out of it and yes you send Ted Ginn deep because he's Ted Ginn and he's faster than everybody they sold it well I think the camera got caught off guard a little bit because it was a little late following the ball for the throw but yeah that's that, that was a clean play I mean, that's a play you set up for a year yeah. because as they were, and they were talking about on the broadcast, it's like, it was after a penalty, I think. So it was like, it was a little quick coming out of a huddle. They sort of jumped Michigan and like, they were a little frantic getting in position. And then Ted Ginn jr. Has his hand on the ground on the line of scrimmage lined up like a tight end. And so they play action. Beanie sells it. Beanie throws himself into the line. You can see a linebacker go to catch Beanie. He's like, what? And then Ted Ginn jr. Is gone. And it's not even a perfect throw by Troy. It's a little underthrown by Troy, but it's good enough because he's so wide open. It is, it is the definition of the play that you save for Michigan. So I just, that is, it's, it's, I mean, if you put up the highlight film of like the greatest plays in Ohio state, Michigan history, that is absolutely up there because you lined up the fastest guy in college football as your third tight end. 
I didn't know whether to fit this into punt or not to punt or the bad coaching move, Bill Davis, Tim Beck, bad coaching decision, but I wanted to talk about this. Late in the game, I think it's still when it's a one-score game, uh, Michigan throws deep on like a third and one. Yep, third and one with 131 left in the third quarter. And Malcolm Jenkins makes a diving interception at like the 22-yard line. Mm -hmm. And then they review it, and it turns out the ball hit the ground. So instead of Ohio State having the ball at the 22-yard line, Michigan gets the ball back fourth and one. Like at their own 40-something. I think it's short of midfield, but it's close enough to midfield, right? And it's fourth and one. And Lloyd Carr punts. He gets this review and he punts it right back and they punt it in the end zone. So it's like, oh my God, oh, it's not an interception. And it's a two yard difference is all that happened. That Ohio State got the ball at the 20 instead of at the 22. The way the game was going, Nathan, I thought it was an opportunity to take a risk, try to seize momentum. They had been running the ball effectively at that point and go for it, even though it was a little bit of a risky spot on the field. But it's one of those things. You're, if you're going to throw a deep ball on third and one and then like not go for it on fourth and one, don't throw the deep ball. Right? I thought so, it was bad right. decision-making by Lloyd Carr. So as much as I put Lloyd Carr under the underappreciated category, I think some mistakes, what I would consider mistakes, he made in the third and early fourth quarter of this game – might have cost Michigan this game because it was a time of the game where they were starting to control things. I mean, after that 21 to 26 that Troy Smith had in the first half, he was one of seven up to the point where Ohio State's only up 35 to 31. Like he, and there was another, there was a fumble in there, like and the interception, like he was not playing especially well. So at one point in the third quarter, it's 35 to 24. Michigan's get a, a third and 10, and with about seven minutes left in the third, and it's at a juncture of the field where if you had, Taking something shorter on third down, I don't even say it has to be a run, but if you do a shorter pass on third down, you give yourself more options on fourth down because it was definitely a four down territory situation, but also close to field goal range at a time when it's 35 to 24. You could argue maybe you're not going to kick a field goal there because Ohio State's scoring enough, but you could pull it within a field. You could pull it within one score if you can't get if you can't convert the third down, but they ran a longer play, a longer developing play on third down. Henny gets pressured and has to throw it away. And then, then they leave themselves no options on fourth down and they go for it and don't get it. And then the play you're talking about the one thirty one left. And then, and then the punt after that, which I also thought was made, but right, by the way, right before, right before that third and one play, they had a graphic up showing that Mike Hart was averaging 6.7 yards a carry. Yeah. Yeah. And Musburger's like, he's the heavy favorite here. And then they throw it downfield and uh, it did not work out. Um, and then later uh, there was a, a third and goal. And he um, in the later when they scored their last touchdown, not the last touchdown, but the one that that pulled them within, I guess, what would have been uh, 35 to 31. Um, oh, well, I'll get to that. So they, they he runs in to make it 35 30. And then they go for one early in the fourth quarter instead of going for two to pull within a field goal. And now that one, they end up getting it back on that late touchdown. But it was kind of too late anyway. So I just thought there were a lot of really questionable strategic decisions that directly on the Michigan staff, directly on Lloyd Carr as to how they chose to execute some things. It's really key situations. I didn't have a problem with the going deep on third and one part because 
when you're watching it, you're thinking, okay, there it's two plays to get one yard, basically. Either you go deep and you catch Ohio State slipping because, like they said, Mike Hart's the one to watch here because everybody thinks Mike Hart's getting the ball here, so why not try to catch him off guard? So when they go to punt, it's that that's what gets confusing because when you go deep on third and one, it's because you're telling the other team you're going for it on fourth down if you don't get it. That yeah. and it's you're it's in position where it's like you're still in your own territory, but you're not at the 25 yard line. You're near, you're near, near mid 43, the 43 yard line. Yeah. This is a place where you do something like this, especially when you're this late into the game and you're down by 11 points. It's a juncture of the field where teams where coaches at in college and the NFL still punt way, way, way too much. You got to get one yard, go get the yard. And and at that, it was an 11 point game at that point. It was 35, 24. You've got to make something happen. Right. It's not like, oh, it's a one score game. We'll punt it back. We'll stop them. We'll get the ball back. It's like you're down two scores. You got to do something here. Like try to knock them out like they're reeling a little bit. And yeah, they just, Mike Carter just gained nine yards to play before. It was second and 10. He gains nine yards. Third and one throw deep. It's picked. It's overturned. And then you punt it. I just thought it was inexcusable. And again, they're undefeated. They're at home. They have the Heisman winner. You've got to take a couple risks here, Lloyd. Like, what are you waiting for? They have more talent than you. You're good, but you got to help your guys out and give them a shot. And I would argue, too, like as much of this that should be based on sort of math and strategy that gets gamed out, I think there are times where you can bring in momentum and psychology and things like that. And when they overturn that interception, that's even more opportunity for you to really build some momentum. It's like going to be like a bit of a downer for the other team to have this interception taken away from them that was originally given to them. And then if you go out and convert the third down, now maybe you're really building something or the fourth down, I guess, in that situation. It's that it's Ohio State having a couple of bad snaps that gets Michigan back the ball. It's you had, I know Ohio State just scored a touchdown in their last possession, but Michigan has started to steal a little bit of momentum in their favor because Ohio State's offense kind of went flat for a little bit. So this would have, this is to the point of take momentum into account. This is a perfect place to do that. It, it is, it, it, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up that the fumble that gives them the ball back because really, if not for that, this is where Ohio State could have made this a much less close game. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing to note that was, I don't, it was bad something by Ohio state and like it cost them, but it didn't cost him the game. Michigan's down two scores in the final three minutes. They're desperate. It's fourth and 16. And everybody has talked about how Mario Manningham is the best double move guy in college football. And on fourth and 16, Mario Manningham runs a double move and winds up in single coverage with Jamario O'Neal, who is not the guy you want in single coverage with Michigan's best receiver, and he gets called for pass interference on fourth and 16. It is absolute desperation. If Michigan doesn't convert the fourth and 16 with 255 to play, the game's over. Instead, you allow this. You don't play enough of a prevent defense that you somehow bite on a double move. Let the, let the guy catch a 12-yard pass. It's fourth and 16. And then Michigan scores. So Michigan is down two scores. They get a touchdown because the drive is kept alive. And so now they're onside kicking with 216 left. And if Ohio State doesn't get the onside kick, like you've just kept them alive because you let them convert a fourth and 16 on a pass interference. It was awful. Ohio State had some wild penalties. They had a roughing the center call on a punt. I don't know how often I see roughing the center calls on punts at that. They had, Ohio State, they, they, they took a big lead, and then they started giving the game away. 
They had the rough in the center call that kept the drive alive because it was a 15-yard penalty. Austin Spittler whacked the center, and you're not allowed to. They had the two weird snaps. They absolutely kept Michigan in this game for a while. I think that play specifically was one that was like a new emphasis for that season or something like that. They had yeah. really started to kind of, and so then as, as often as the case, like that's a big deal that year, maybe the next year. And then it sort of starts to get de-emphasized either because teams adjust to it or because officials aren't as keen to, to emphasize it. And also in the like bad coaching thing, Michigan scores with two little two plus left. And then they have to onside kick. Cause they only have one timeout left. <laughs> Yeah. And then the game's over when it's recovered. And it's like they burned their time out. Like they burned their one of them. I, I know was just kind of burning it. I don't know. I can't remember what the other one was, but it's like if Lloyd Carr had all his timeouts in the pocket, even when Ohio State recovered the onside kick, you still could have forced them to get a first down and you would have gotten the ball back. But then Ted Ginn Jr. recovers the onside kick and it's over. So Ohio State really did some things. We're talking about bad snaps. Doug Daddish had an issue with his wrist. And they were saying on the on the bar on the broadcast, it was like, oh, he had a wrist problem and he wore a cast. And it's superstition that he's healed, but he still wears the cast. And again, Bleacher Report did like a, a oral history ten years later, and Doug Daddish is in that. And he's like, yeah, that's not actually the truth. Like my wrist was still jacked up, so that's why I was wearing the cast. But he has one that was over Troy's head, and they lost on a fumble. And then the mm-hmm. other one, he said the ball got stuck in a divot. By the way, we have to talk about that. This is like the last grass season at Ohio state. Like it's embarrassing how bad this field is. They had to resod the stadium twice that year. They talk a lot before the game. They're doing the sideline report. Hey, it's new sod, but everybody says it's okay. And then it just gets ripped apart and guys are slipping during the game. And it's like the one I said, it's a perfect Ohio state game. It's the one thing that takes away from it. Cause you hate when that kind of thing happens. And it's not like guys fell down every play, but like, you've got to have better this. Now they have to, and like even at the, during point of it, Curb Street, it's like, oh, they should have field turf. And Bob Davies like, oh, why don't you donate? And it's like they, they did. They got field turf like the next year. <laughs> so like it's they were like, nope, done with this. So no more natural grass. at Ohio. I think it was the next year soon after. So no more natural grass at Ohio Stadium because this, the, the turf did not live up to the standard of the game. Nobody should have grass anymore in football. So Michigan State, get it together. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely, but it's like you just, you know, it rains and then you play in the mud and yeah. then all of a sudden, like it, your state, your turf is screwed for the rest of the season. All right. The Kenny Guyton next man up award. This wasn't I didn't have one that was injury related, but it's something that Nathan mentioned earlier. Brian Hartline was the fourth receiver on this team. It was Ted Ginn Jr., Anthony Gonzalez, Brian Robisky, and then Brian Hartline. Brian Hartline caught like a critical fourth uh, first down catch. When they went to him on like third down, it was like, oh, what are you doing on third down? It's like, I don't know, throw into our fourth receiver and single coverage. And he got like inside leverage on the corner, one off the line of scrimmage, got that inside positioning and Troy hit him. And it was like, okay, well, I thought like, that's pretty good that you're throwing to your fourth receiver in a, on a money down. And like Brian Hartline, guess what? Runs a good route and makes the catch and has good hands. And I just thought that was an indication of like some of their skill position depth in that moment. Steven, what'd you have for this? Um, the only injury one related was for Michigan. Uh, Tim Schaefer started for Alex Boone, even though they had Alex Boone in the graphic, but he was injured. So Tim Schaefer started at left tackle. Um, I mean, and Michigan's offensive line had a pretty quality day, so I'll, I'll shout him out. Um, and then Boone did come in, though. Boone did. Yeah, he did. did. He came in, in later in the game, but it's the, he didn't start it. And it was a last minute thing. And so uh, ABC didn't have a chance to uh, change the graphic. But that's the only thing for me. I will say this. A lot of assistant coaches in this game. Marcus Freeman uh, for 
Notre Dame now. You got Brian Hartline for Ohio State, and then Mike Hart, running backs coach yeah. for Michigan right now. So a lot of assistant coaches. And I think all three of those guys are going to be head coaches someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Mike Hart might be Michigan's coach someday. That guy's like, that guy's a good football player. I, Ohio State fans hate him because he said some crazy stuff during the course of his career, mostly from frustration because <laughs> yeah, he was a really good he was a really good player and he never beat Ohio State. And of course, that would make you frustrated. He's a really good football player, and I think a f- good football guy, good football mind. And he's he's on the rise as a coaching candidate. And we all know Marcus Freeman. Marcus Freeman's going to be in an important Power Five job in the next five years. Uh, Nathan, do you have an X man up here? I just the guys you mentioned, Schaefer and the uh, the receivers. Okay, Jonathan Cooper. If he's going to bite, he'll bite as a pup. Beanie was biting, baby. Like it is, it is, it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, Beanie had the issue once he got to the NFL with uh, a doctor that he said kind of didn't fix his ankle the right way and messed up his career. So he never really got to see it in the NFL 2008, his junior year, when he should have been like a Heisman candidate, he's has issues early in the year. Doesn't play against USC. He was a monster in 2007, this next year in 2007, when Pittman's gone, like Beanie trucks people, but this spin move, it is, I think it's better than the Braxton Miller spin move because like it's more, it's enclosed environments and it leads to a touchdown and it's like super important, but it's like, there's a guy coming off the edge. They hand it to Beanie. He spin moves the guy in the backfield, like breaks like two linebacker tackles and then goes and he's a truck, man. It's like, he's, he's moving, but like that guy, like that, that is like a classic he looks like he's he looks like he's from the 70s. He's got shoulders that practically go from sideline to sideline. And he look you he's like the last guy you want to tackle. And he's running 52 yards for a touchdown as they're like wrinkle running back as a true freshman. And it's just everything you would want it to be. That's the thing. It's a 52 yard touchdown when it should have been like a four yard loss. Yep. That's that's what makes it so impressive. It's that, but then also Beanie Wells has looked 28 years old since he was 18 because they showed him on the sideline talking to Troy Smith after the interception. He looks the same then as he does now. Anytime I've seen him walking around Ohio Stadium at a football game. So nothing's changed with Beanie Wells. He was always an adult man. But then also, I saw it. I squinted my eyes and I went, Travion Henderson. Oh, yeah. Good feet. Good feet in tight spaces. And then get out and you're gone. Uh, and the other thing that Beanie, they showed after Troy threw that pick, Bonnie, Bonnie Bernstein did a really good job as a sideline reporter in this game. She provided like a lot of information. She was talking I, about how I always thought she was great. She's yeah. really good. She, she um, is talking about how after Troy throws this pick, he's inconsolable on the sideline. She said, she said like five different players came over and tried to talk to him. And then the shot they have is like Beanie, yep. like Beanie's in Troy's face. You was trying to be like, like, you're the man. Don't get down. We believe in you. He's a freshman. That's like your fifth year senior Heisman Trophy winner who's inconsolable. And like your five-star freshman is like, you're our guy. And it was like, man, like there's a, there's a, a version of Beanie's career that is like, oh, who's the best running back in Ohio State history? It's like, well, Archie did win two Heismans and Archie is unbelievable, but it might be Beanie Wells. Right. And it's like, it's just, it's not that because he just had like the one year in 2007 that was super awesome. That guy was a rare talent. Nathan, I'm assuming that's the guy you had to hear that as a freshman, what he did there. 
Oh yeah, um, and it—it's it, it a little bit jarring uh, because those of us from the outside, we only really know him as Beanie Wells. We forget that it's Chris Wells. So like he breaks off that first run, and they go, "Oh, there's Chris Wells with the big run." You're like, "Who?" Oh yeah, Beanie, yeah. Beanie, you mean? So uh, I had to catch up a little bit. Um, but uh, it, it just—it's—it's it's fun to watch those moments where you know what's coming next for that guy, and here you get to see just sort of the. I mean, that's what the category is like, right? I mean, you're seeing just those first little nibbles before they really start feasting later in their career. Bigger what if Beanie Wells or Maurice Claret? Oh. I think it's got to be Claret just because. I mean, yeah, because we only got one year Claret, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the the start was so prodigious, and then it it never materialized in any way. I mean, it's literally just that one year that's that's sort of frozen in time. I mean, Wells got to keep playing. Um, I understand what, what you're asking, and maybe especially as a pro, but um, but I Claret's the answer to that question. Beanie Wells, this season as a freshman, 2006, 104 carries, 576 yards, 5.5-yard average. 2007 as a sophomore, 274 carries, 1,609 yards, 5.9-yard average. And then listen, this junior year, he's still good. Plays 10 games. 207 carries, 1,197 yards, 5.8 yard average. So he kind of is who he is, like his whole career. It's just that if you would have been able to give him the ball like 24 times a game, and if he had been on the field every game, um, he just would have done next level stuff. But I just, it's, but the other thing here, I did think, so Troy's special, but obviously Michigan has talent. Like, as we said, this is a talented Michigan team on both sides, but I thought that beanie moment was also a little bit like, Oh, that's why Ohio state's better. It's like our starter. I think the starters for Ohio state, Michigan matched up pretty well. Then it's like, Oh, Ohio state's like, Oh, let's get our five-star freshman running back. Who's our number two guy. And let's see what he does. And then it was like, whoop. And it's like, Michigan didn't have that. One of the things that sort of popped in my head as I was watching that was I feel like that's something that Ohio State's been missing a little bit these last couple of years. And I want to give uh, all, all respect to Master Teague and what he did in 2019 as like the second guy behind Dobbins, especially coming in and feasting later in games. And certainly all credit to Trey Sermon eventually turning it on last year. But I didn't feel really like either these last two years there was that second backfield option that you were putting in against first string defenses and might um, – just blast a hole through them in about a moment's notice. And I feel like that's what they're trying to build back towards, right? Like that's something they hope that they're on the cusp of. I don't know if they get there this year, but certainly by the time that both Henderson and Pryor are like in the groove, that's what they think they're going to get back to. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I think that's what uh, in a, in an ideal world, that's what, this is what Henderson and Pryor are. And this is like the, this is what the, the formula is going forward, which is why, you know, you go get two top 100 guys in one year in 2021, and then you don't do it in 2022. And then you do it again in 2023, where now you've got two guys that teams have to deal with, where it's not, it's not a switch every series thing. It's just, you just got done dealing with the number one running back in the country. Now we're going to throw the number four running back in the country at you and see how you handle that. Although, but, but Pittman and Wells, like were separated. They were like two years apart. I like it yeah. that I I'd rather have that. That I mean, to me, it's like, Oh, what do you do? It's like, well, JK Dobbins is a junior. He's your guy. And Trevion Henderson's a freshman. And then he's going to be your Fair. second guy. And then Trevion Henderson's right. going to be the start. Like that. I, this is the ideal setup. And we can't pretend, listen, Pittman in this game had 18 carries for 139 yards, 7.7 yard average. B 
Beanie Wells had five carries for 56 yards. So he had a 52 yard run and then he had four other carries for four total yards. So he wasn't a dominant force the whole game, but he got you a touchdown on a play that should have been a four yard loss, as Steven said. And that is in a game like this is the difference between winning and losing. Beanie's Beanie is so good. He just, he, that, that combo, when you're that big and that physical, but you've also got that burst, man, that is special. And you saw the feet, you saw the nimbleness here. I mean, again, it's just, you wish you could have stayed healthy for longer. All right, let's do the Ted Ginn Jr. speed moment. And we, we dealt with this when we did the 2005 game. It's like, well, the award's named for him. So I don't know, just like, I guess Ted Ginn Jr. being Ted Ginn Jr. They really went to him a lot in this game. They came out, Nathan, you're talking about, they came out throwing, they came out throwing to Ted Ginn Jr. Yep. He wound up with eight catches for 104 yards. He had a long of 39 yards. But I also thought to some extent, Michigan kept him under control a little bit because the 39 yard touchdowns, basically, it's not exactly a trick play, but it's kind of a trick play. It's not like they lined up Ted Ginn Jr. against Michigan's best corner and said, let's go. So there was a moment and it's like one of those things that, that always was the case with, with Ted. When he catches a punt, and he gets past the first guy and it's like, here he goes. It's like they're, you're winding him up. And he had a punt return where it's like he got past the first guy. It was like, here he goes. And he got like four more yards because like the second guy tackled him. But even that half a second, I think every Ohio State fan who watched him knows what I'm talking about. That half a second when Ted Jr. has gone from like first gear to second gear. And he's about to hit third gear. And if he gets to third gear, it's over. And you like you feel it rising in your body. It's like here he goes. And then sometimes he just someone gets him before he gets to third gear. I thought there was one moment of that in this game, but in general, I thought they did okay. And I thought one of the speed moments was Mario Manningham smoked Malcolm Jenkins with the double move early in the game and was open by five yards. And Chad Henney missed him. That was a touchdown. Mario Manningham did his job there, and Chad Henney didn't. Nathan, what'd you have for this? Yeah, I thought there were a couple of actually overthrown touchdowns, including one to Ginn early in this game, too, where, where Smith overthrew yep. him that that should have been a touchdown. Um, I, I put Pittman down on this, and I know that we talked about the play earlier um, that was really sprung by that offensive line. But once that hole was there, he was shot out of a cannon. I, again, I, I was – it's someone who, as we've talked, we brought his name up before as that, like, next level of running back that – is productive and still kind of gets obscured a little bit in Ohio State history just because they'll have so many, the, the Elliots, the Dobbins, the Wellses that kind of push those guys down. But um, I, I came away impressed by Antonio Pittman. Yeah, my, mine was the second play of the game when they went deep to Ted Ginn and they just overthrew him. But then also in the name of preventing the speed moment of the game to happen, I love the way Michigan would kick to Ted Ginn on kick returns. They kicked to him to a corner where they could corner and box him in so he couldn't go anywhere, so he couldn't even get to second gear. Forget third gear. Forget all that. We can't let you get to second gear because then you're a problem. So I, I thought that was an interesting little thing to do. Instead of just not kicking to him, just kick to him to a corner where he can't go anywhere but out of bounds. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. Those are the player categories. When we come back, style check, meme it, Maurice Kulorek, game-saving moment, and then the enjoyment meter. We're doing Ohio State, Michigan, 2006 on Buckeye Talk. Again, try the texts if you would. We're getting to that time of year where it's really going to ramp up. 614-350-3315. And if you are not um, listening to it, it's coming out soon. The National College Football Podcast that we're launching. It's called the College Football Playoff Show. 
Uh, as we record this, we're recording this a couple days ahead. It's not officially out yet. We've recorded the first episode, but I'll keep you posted. But just keep your eye out for that. We'd love to have you guys subscribe to that. That's me and Shahan J. Haraja, a great uh, writer from Texas, who are doing that podcast again. The College Football Playoff Show with Doug Maurice. Look for that wherever you find Buckeye Talk. All right, style check. Stephen, what'd you have for this? Again, not too far, not too far, not too far away, not too far away. We're not talking zoot suits and stuff like we were at the 70s podcasts. I'm going to bring up the suits because these suits aren't any better. When they go to the studio and show those big suits, that's awful. They are very. (laughs) Doug Flutie is wearing a suit that should be like for a 400 pound man. And it is on like a five foot nine quarterback. It is awful. You're right. I, I can't believe people used to wear clothes this big back in the days. This is awful. Kirk Herbstreit in the glasses, which is a, which is a wrinkle I, did, I forgot existed. Um, but on the field stuff, I think Ohio State needs to go back to the, the end zones without the, the scarlet in it. I love these end zones. I've always Ooh. loved these end zones. I think they should bring these back. I like it. That's a very astute uh, little specific observation there. Nathan, what'd you have? Yeah, I, I, I noticed those end zones as well. I thought they looked pretty sharp. Um, you don't really get the sweater vest in this game. Mm. He's wearing like other stuff on yeah. top of that. So it's it's weird to watch a trestle game and not see the sweater vest. So it's like a lack of style check. Yeah. Um, another one, and this was maybe very specific to me for my background, but when I covered Purdue football, Daryl Hazel was the head coach there. He was known for wearing these like long sleeve windbreakers. It could be preseason camp in August and it's 114 degrees or whatever. And that guy for two a days, both sessions is wearing these long sleeve windbreaker things. And there, sure enough, he's on the field with like the same exact thing for Ohio state in this game. Although it made more sense because it was like November. So that I, I understand it there, but it's like, he just never took it off and wore it year round. He was like, he was like a, uh, uh, David cross, the never nude from uh, arrested development, except Daryl Hazel just wore his windbreaker at all times. Um, and then also Brent Musburger saying, Call your friends, folks. After it, I can't remember what touchdown it was, but it like it got close again, and I was, yeah. it just it, it made me think like, oh, like who actually calls their friends now? Like you wouldn't you wouldn't waste a phone call at that moment now because it's like, it takes too long. Like you would just send a text, be like ABC now or Fox now, and then just like that's it. That's all you would say. Um, I just so that reminded me of like a time when people actually called their friends on the phone to yeah. tell them things. Very quaint. Yes. Uh, I did. I had two things. One is a broadcast thing. One is, and I guess this is a style choice by ABC here. Three man booth. Yeah. Brent Musburger, not good. Brent Musburger, Kirk Herbstreet, and Bob Davey. So, Bob Davey, I, I looked this up and somebody, they, they have this on Wikipedia. Bob Davey in 2005 was the number one color guy for the ABC ESPN games. And Kirk Herbstreet was on game day. And Kirk Herbstreet, did the Thursday night ESPN games, but on Saturdays, he only did game day. In 2006, they make a three-man booth with Brent Musburger, Bob Davey, and Kirk Herbstreet. In 2007, it's a two-man booth. It's Brent Musburger and Kirk Herbstreet, and Bob Davey's on ESPN2. There are a couple things that Bob Davey says here. He says like, oh, you had that big party at your big house, Kirk Herbstreet. Oh, and then he says something about, oh, you're a donor. Why don't you donate to the field turf? And it's like, you're mad that Kirk Herbstreet is stealing your job. <laughs> and you could feel it, but yeah. it's too crowded. It's too crowded. 
Herbie, Herbie is great. I mean, I think everybody acknowledges that. And I, and there's just not enough room. And, and like, I don't even know college football. I mean, they don't do, uh, does any other, any three man booths anymore? This was too many uh, voices. I didn't need Bob Davey. And like, I think Bob Davey knew the world didn't need Bob Davey. So Bob Davey was like, Ooh, you and your mansion, Kirkham Street. <laughs> so I was going to say I'd feel bad, but I don't, I don't care what happens to Bob Davey. So um, I thought that was odd. I think the only three-man booth that still exists is in the NBA Finals, and it's awful. Um, but, it, it, yeah, no, you could definitely tell somebody was losing their job It was not happy about it at all. Yeah, this is, the, like, this is the rise of Herb Street. Like, this is happening, like, right now. He's established himself on game day, and they're like, he's so good, we have to have him on the biggest mm-hmm. games as well, and he's been there ever since. The other thing is, this game started at 3.30. This game traditionally is a noon start, sometimes a one this was a 3.30 start, and they talked about early in the broadcast that by, by the end of this game, the lights will be on. And I liked it. Like, it was such an embodiment of a fall Saturday to me that I'm not saying they have to do 3.30 all the time. I respect the fact that they have not gone to the 8 o'clock start for Ohio State, Michigan, which we talk about all the time. When will Fox make them do that? Fox likes the noon games. It's been back. It's been in this noon window for many, many years now. But for this moment, the idea of like, it's getting a little bit colder. It's getting dark. You know what that's like on a fall Saturday when like it, it you know, it's, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, 90 minutes later, like there's no more sun. I thought it added to this game. I thought it added a little bit to the style of the game. And this was after the game. This was the game where Trestle gave the quote after the game, something about like, there's going to be kids all over Ohio playing in the backyard with the leaves, pretending they're Troy Smith kind of stuff. And it just felt like the embodiment of autumn in Ohio. And I thought the fact that it started at three 30 and it was dark by the time it ended. And when everybody's storming the field, it's the lights are on. It's a dark sky. I thought it added to the atmosphere. I agree. Darkness is cool. Buckeye talk. All right. Um, and so we're good on style check again, you know, big suits, big suits is like, I, I don't like to acknowledge the big suits cause uh, I was a big suit wearer. You mm. should, I got some, I got some big suit stuff from back in the day. I probably have a big suit in my closet still. I should put on, um, meme it. What you got for a meme Baird? Um, I, I thought the divots of the, the missing sod would probably have made for a meme. Like that's something Michigan fans could have picked up on like, Oh, you've got, um, you know, all the, all the money in the world, but you can't sod your field. And then Ohio State fans could have um, taken the shot of Derek Jeter in the crowd and said, uh, the, you know, the Yankees captain has to come to watch Michigan to re- be reminded what it's like to lose, stuff like that. Um, there, was, there was a good exchange, Lloyd Carr joking around with an official where I think someone, this wouldn't have necessarily been a meme, but I think you could have done one of those contests like, it would have been kind of a meme, like you would have screenshot it and been like, um, you know, what's this conversation? Wrong answers only. And people would have like included what they thought they were talking about. This is not a meme, but I want to talk about it. Why have they never figured out? It seems to me the most stupid thing in sports right before halftime that both teams are trying to go to the locker room. They have to cross each other to get to their locker rooms because of the way that you come onto the fields and the way that you occupy your opposite sidelines from where you come on. That seems like such a silly thing that they should have been able to decades ago figure out a way from ever happening. Because now the officials have to go out and stand in between and like make sure there aren't any altercations at halftime just because these teams are being forced to run into each other. I always thought that was silly. I don't know. Like Ohio Stadium, 
Yeah, the home locker room and the home tunnel mm-hmm. the, is on the opposite side of like right. the bigger home sideline. And they just built it that way. And I don't know why. That's a very good question. We should ask that. Well, and I part of it could just be for the pageantry of it, because if you're thinking about it from a pregame standpoint, you want them to come down the tunnel. You want them to run out on the field and run across the field, like onto the sideline. So I guess I understand that. But why there just hasn't been a better answer to how you go into halftime than like, okay, you two teams just go run at each other like Red Rover style and collide at midfield and hopefully don't have any fights after you've been out bashing your brains in for the first half. Um, let's just hope it goes okay. Like there just seems to be like a better answer. There's got to be just, a better way. I say that just, a lot in life. Like there's got to <laughs> be a better way. They should just put the locker rooms on opposite ends of North and South. And so the oh, East, that'd be so good. That way, yeah, because then you can still have the idea of, especially on senior day, it looks good when you're running across the field in front of 100,000 people. It's just you go your separate ways. Yeah. I, like, I would imagine right now someone is typing a text already to us to tell us why it's this way or why we're wrong yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But I welcome that text. Yeah. Um, I thought the Troy senior day bowl entrance where he's like wipes his feet, right? Where he does like, it's, it's right at the beginning of the broadcast and he has his fist in the air and he like does like a three wipe, mm-hmm. wipe, wipe. Iconic. Like duck your head and go is the greatest senior day entrance, entrance you could ever have. And if I could just like, I'm going to start doing that when I like go into Wendy's. I'm going to like put my fist in the air and like wipe my feet like I'm gearing up to go in. And now I'm in Wendy's because it's the it's the greatest thing ever. And like, I don't know if he just did it. I don't know if he planned it out in his apartment the week before. Like, it looks awesome. And it's it's like it, it to me, I, it's almost like when I think of Troy Smith, that's the first thing that pops in my head because it was such an iconic entrance to his final game in Ohio stadium. It's iconic because I think 2018 to bring that up again, KJ Hill and Dwayne Haskins do it. And then I think when we talked to them later that week, we asked him about it and they get in an argument on whose idea it was and who stole it. And Dwayne's like, I called Troy and asked him to do it. You just did it. But yeah, that's an iconic moment for an Ohio state history. I hope somebody else does it again. Um, real soon. As a matter of fact, CJ Stroud, you should do it this year on Michigan's yeah. field. That would be pretty cool. Um, my mean moment, you brought it up already. Musenberger calling Tressel the best play caller he's seen in a long time is a ridiculous statement to make. I understand he's having a great game. You made it. You he owned the game for you, Doug. This that's a ridiculous statement. And the reason why it's a, a meme is because you can take that sound bite, say it, and then you can go the little SpongeBob one year later. And then you can just show trestle ball and a bunch of fans being upset. I just like, just like piece together like 60 punts as Brent (laughs) Musburger keeps saying it. It's a ridiculous statement. That's too far. I I get it. I get it. That's a good, that's a good point. Um, All right. Maurice Collette game saving moment. Nathan, what'd you have for this? It's the late hit on Troy Smith. Yep. 649 left in the fourth quarter, third and 15 play, incomplete pass, but a Michigan player. And I, I, you know, Sean Crable, Sean Crable puts a helmet into Troy Smith. And even in 2006, even all the way back in 2006, they were smart enough to know that that was significant and shouldn't happen. I know that I don't know if that I don't know if throughout the history of the Ohio State Michigan game that this would have been called a penalty, but it is certainly was by 2006 and it was definitely a good call 
And, um, you know, Michigan, if they get the ball back there, who knows what happens, but uh, they don't. And that's your ball game. Yep. One of the iconic moments in series history. Steven, is that what you had as well? Mm-hmm. That's mine. So the thing that I think is, and, and I've been confused by that and in rewatching it, uh, Troy's second foot is still in bounds when Sean Crable hits him. So it's really, he did not hit him out of bounds. Like he, no, he it was honestly the helmet was to helmet. Still, I don't think, no, it was I know, yeah. but, but I think it has often been characterized as a late hit. It's like, oh, Sean Crable's late hit. And it really is. And I was trying to look up some stuff about it. I think I really read one thing and it was from Chris Nowinski, who's the CTE expert about concussions that I think in 2005, the NCAA had tried to clarify some language in their rule book about whether like a, a high hit to the helmet like that, a helmet to helmet hit, whether it was intentional or not it used to be, I guess it had to be intentional. It's like, well, I just, how can you tell if it's intentional, but it really was. And, and, Kirk Herbstreet and Bob Davey and Brett Musburger, to your point, Nathan, like they all agree it's the right call. It's helmet to helmet. Herbstreet says he came in high. And I do think maybe I have thought of it as a late hit over the years, and it's not. It's absolutely helmet to helmet. But Troy is inbounds. If he just goes lower, because Troy does a great job. Troy drops back, pressure, scramble, reset, pressure, scramble again, and then head toward the sideline. Troy keeps the play alive to sort of create the opportunity for someone to give him a shot like that. But it really is in in rewatching it. I didn't realize that it really was that it's helmet to helmet and it's not that it was out of bounds. So nobody will ever forget it. And it's just one of those. I I, I sort of didn't talk about this with Troy earlier. Again, the other thing I always think about with Troy is when there's chaos and then he settles like, like the way he would settle in the pocket before he would rip a throw when he was pressured on this play, he sort of settled twice and then took off. And he just, the, the way he kept the play alive, if, if he had just chucked out of bounds earlier, right. And doesn't give the chance for this to happen. Michigan might win, Nathan. I mean, like Michigan might win because there had been a little bit of a momentum shift at that point. Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, they at least give themselves a chance there, but it, this combined with um, what Ohio state's able to do at, at the end of that, that possession. I mean, that that's your ball game. I mean, that, that, that changes everything. Yeah. It's a one score game at that point. And, and Ohio state's going to have to give the ball back to Michigan in a one score game. And instead the drive is kept alive and Ohio state scores a touchdown. All right. Um, enjoyment meter. We do it both from a national standpoint and we do it from an Ohio state standpoint. Let's do it from a national regular college football fan. Nathan, you said you probably watched this or remember watching this. Um, as somebody from Illinois who was not associated with either program at this point, what'd you give the enjoyment meter for the average college football fan for this? I went 884. That actually seems a little bit low. I probably should go higher than that because I mean, it's one versus two, uh, the implications that are there. It's a relatively close game. Um, I thought there was some poor execution in the second half, um, but it also was, was a, a, a situation where, it seemed like Ohio State was maybe going to pull away and make this a laugher, and then Michigan was able to kind of regroup and keep it close. So that I, I think that kind of that played into it too. That um, that 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 Michigan gave itself a chance. It really, I mean, going into that play, the play we're talking about, the the, the late hit, um, they've got a chance to win this. Stephen, what'd you give the overall enjoyment meter? 
960, I think if it wasn't the cleanest game, especially in the second half, but if you don't look at it from an analytical standpoint, a critical standpoint, and just look at it as an average fan, it was exciting. Ohio State got up big, then Michigan got back into the game. Then Ohio State tried to pull away again and did some crazy things again, and then Michigan did some stupid things as well. It's enough that if it lived in the Twitterverse, Twitter would have been going crazy watching this game. It, it wasn't in the end. It wasn't quite as close as the score says, because Michigan did get that late touchdown after the fourth and 16 conversion, where you're then kicking an onside kick with only one timeout. So it goes down as a three point win, but you know, they were never knocking on the doorstep that late in the game. This was the closest they were knocking because it's a one score game at this point um, before Ohio State adds a touchdown. I'd say nine fifty. I mean, I think it's one of these things. It's one versus two and I don't have this in front of me. I should have looked this up. It's like, how often do you get 11 and 0 versus 11 and 0? I mean, I get, you know, I guess Alabama and Clemson have done it in the playoff and that kind of thing, right? But I mean, like, you get two undefeated teams this late in the season. That doesn't happen every day, especially in the regular season. And so when you add the drama of like, oh, did you hear Bo Schembechler died? And it's one versus two and it's the Heisman winner. I just think anybody, anybody would be interested in this. And again, for what was going on in college football back then, like, this is, this is high level college football. You know, like, they're sure Bama stinks. <laughs> In 2006, the Saban magic is he's not there yet. Like, right. It's not, I guess he's this was his first year, I think. Right. No, this no, no, is, no, no, no. Because he got the, I think 07 is his first year. So he probably is having the press conference. Uh, OK, yeah. Announcing that he's coming. So like Florida's good. It's like they're, you know, USC is getting ready to play a big game against Cal later in the day. But it's like Ohio State, Michigan. It's kind of like carrying college football this year for much of the season. And so I do think. Living up to that, I think the average football fan who took three and a half hours out of their Saturday afternoon and evening to watch this game came away satisfied. Steven, what do you give it in the enjoyment meter for an Ohio State fan? It's not a trophy, so I'm not going to give it a thousand. So I'm going to give it a nine, nine, nine because it's Ohio State, Michigan, number one, number two at home. You've got the Heisman Trophy winner, two really good Ohio State and Michigan teams, and you win on the national stage. You win. This is this is everything you would want in a football game as an Ohio State fan that doesn't have to do with winning an actual trophy. Do you almost want to warn Ohio State fans as this game ends of what's coming in 50 days? Or do you just yes. want to let them enjoy this and don't let them know that they're going to get blown out 41-14 by Florida? I think it, it's not to be weird about this. It's why I would never time travel. Because if you go back in time and look at people's enjoyable moments and go, oh, you have no idea. This is not going to end well for you. It's yeah. not going to end well for you at all. Because <laughs> they're on such a high horse. Ohio State's the, the favorite going into the national title game. Wire to wire, number one team in the country. They have every reason to be cocky. And then it's just all, all that air is going to get let out of the balloon in 50 days. And so, you know, I think you just got to let them live in this moment and enjoy it and be clueless for a little bit longer. I mean, they really do spend a lot of this broadcast trying to figure out like what bedraggled number two team they can find to play the mighty <laughs> Buckeyes. It's like, well, I guess Arkansas and Florida are going to play in the SEC championship game. Maybe it's them. I guess it's USC if they win out. Uh, is it Michigan again? I don't know. But it's like, well, Ohio State's definitely number one. And then I guess we'll find somebody to play them because you've got to play the game. I think there's enough Ohio State fans who would say that like a Michigan game still like means more to them than a game for a trophy that I would give it a thousand. As I said, I think it's almost like the perfect Ohio state football game. So I'll go all the way there. Nathan, what'd you have? I went nine ninety one. I mean, I reserve a thousand for uh, re things like national championships and, and 
things like that. But this comes pretty dang close. I mean, it's not, I don't think very often as we've done this that I've scored a game that high and it's to, to get to, to win the one versus two game, a historic game, biggest crowd in the history of Ohio stadium at that time, or is it still the biggest crowd? I don't know. I don't know that it's the biggest crowd anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. think so. Cause I mean, it, I it was at that time, according to, yeah, according yes. to them, um, just everything that went into that game, you, you, you think that it probably does lock up the Heisman for Troy Smith. There isn't much more that you could ask except for it also locking up a national championship, which it obviously didn't, but at least gave you a shot. So that, that adds to it as well. All right. So I get in the end, I mean, Ohio state played really well. Michigan, Ohio state let Michigan in the game, but Michigan also fought back. Steven, you were kind of saying that earlier that like from the national enjoyment meter, Michigan comes out and goes right down the field. And it's like, whoa. But then Ohio State, like Michigan punts like the next four possessions and Ohio State gets rolling and it feels like it might be a blowout. But then Michigan comes back and gets a score at the end to like give them life again. And then it's like Michigan makes it a game. So it's like Ohio State had snapping issues and sort of some weird stuff that kept Michigan around. But you do have to give Michigan a lot of credit. It's like, I wish just from a standpoint of like competitive games, this is what you wish Michigan was. And I know that Ohio state fans just want to beat Michigan, no matter what, this is like a good, smart, physical, talented football team, well-coached football team that, that hangs absolutely hangs for 58 minutes with the best team in the country. You know, like this is a great opponent to test yourself against. And it's the thing that I think, you know, you miss. It's like, oh, that's what the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry can be like. And it doesn't have to be one versus two. And, and Michigan was like this in 2016. Michigan hung right with Ohio State in 2016. But it just hasn't happened enough. And it's like, I know there's enough Ohio State fans who love the blowouts in 18 and 19. But, man, I just like this is it, Stephen. Like, this is this is the game. The, this the, is the game. Yeah, yeah. It's It's – if you were because going back, you since you brought 1819, I've been kind of talking about it too. They get they hang for two quarters in both of those games in 18 and 19, and then the third quarter is where the death tape takes over, and that's been the problem lately. Is in this game, Michigan got in 2006, they got to the third quarter, even if they had to fight their way back in it to get back to the third quarter, but they got to the third quarter. And so looking into the future, when is the position, when is Michigan maybe going to be in a position where maybe they can get to the third quarter on Wednesday, we just did a podcast about the 2023 possible super team for Ohio state and who might be a thorn in the side of that. Michigan's going to have a five-star quarterback and a high quality running back and a decent team. Could that be a place where even if Ohio state ultimately wins that game, just like they did in 2006, can Michigan get back to a place where it's at least close for third through three quarters where the fourth quarter is still interesting. Ohio state outgains Michigan 503 yards to 397 in this game. But the thing I like about it is as much as all the stuff we talked about, like Ohio state had to be on point to get this done. They had the big plays, right? The Wells 52 yard run had to have it. It's a great individual play. The Ginn 39-yard touchdown pass. It's a great design by Trestle. Probably the, the best play he ever designed in his life. They had to have it. The Pittman 56-yard run. Great blocking burst by Pittman. Gets it done. And then they run what is a perfect two-minute drill at the end of the first half. They go 80 yards in nine plays, two, minute and, two minutes and eight seconds, to extend that lead to 28-24 right after Michigan 
had scored to cut it to 21-14. Like, it is perfect football. They go right down the field, and they make multiple plays when they had to. And it's like any one of those, right? There's three big plays. There's the great drive. Any one of those, yeah, Ohio State made some mistakes. But any one of those, if you don't get that touchdown, you might lose this game. So I, I appreciate the fact that Ohio State looked like the best team in the country, and Michigan made them play that way in a one versus two game with all this hype and it lived up to the hype. And that's why we talked about it on Buckeye retalkables. Okay. I think that might be the last retalkables for a little while. we got one more Buckeye fly effect coming before we get back into like the heart of uh, the season starting with big 10 media days. Maybe we'll squeeze in one more, but we certainly like doing these. It's a fun uh, time to get away, but it's going to be football season soon. So make sure you listen to Buckeye talk five days a week. Read cleveland.com slash Buckeye talk. And if you'd be so kind, we certainly would take your reviews and we're appreciative of all the kind reviews we've gotten as of late. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice. Ohio State beats Michigan 42-39 in 2006. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.